Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, I'm arrested, warrants shown, CID cars are going to my mom's address. So my mom's sitting at home on a Friday night watching EastEnders or whatever, having a cup of tea and totally unaware until the police kick in her front door. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Adam Raja. Adam is a climber, a photographer, an activist, and works as a marketeer for Protect Our Winters UK, a climate advocacy charity. I'm also proud to call him a close friend these days. I first spoke to Adam for the podcast almost a year ago after seeing an article he'd written online. We'd never met before. However, I recently made the decision to confine that conversation to the never-to-be-released hard drive and record this one instead. I feel I have very good reasons for doing so. At the end of that conversation, Adam and I hit stop, grabbed a beer and carried on chatting for an hour. With hindsight, I should have kept it running, although if I'd done that, he would never have trusted me with the information he did ultimately share with me, and we wouldn't have made the film that I've spent the last six months making alongside the team at Coldhouse. Adam shared with me that when he was in his late teens, he was sentenced and sent to prison for dealing Class A drugs. As you'll find out in this episode, when he came out of prison, he decided to change his life's path. Then he discovered mountains. If you're interested, then search for Burkhouse, The Ascension Series, Adam Raja on YouTube. We've also created audio-described and British Sign Language versions for those who are visually impaired or hard of hearing. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication, Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Adam Raja. Okay, let's get this show on the road. Obviously, Adam Raja, we have done this before. Um... It was a long time ago. I think it was a year ago or nearly a year ago. And I think over the course of this conversation, we'll repeat a lot of what we discussed all that time ago, but also add in some significant new information. And for those listening, I guess the reason that, well, not I guess, the reason we're redoing this is 
at the end of our last conversation, which was the first time Adam and I had ever met, we stayed on the call for about another hour and decided to, um, I guess, pour our hearts out to each other and drink a beer and make friends. And that then led us to make a film um, about Adam's life and past and falling in love with the mountains and you could say, Mr. Raja, salvation, maybe. Um, But we'll come on to all of that, I'm sure. And naturally, I'm going to plug that film. It's on the Burkhardt's YouTube channel. It's called The Ascension Series, Adam Raja. Um, And yeah, check it out for a condensed version of this story with cinematic visuals of Adam doing his thing. So, you're smiling away. (laughs) Are you nervous, Adam? I'm always nervous. A little bit, it's always underlying. <laughs> because um, you've told this story before now many times, so it should come fairly naturally to you. But um, we'll see. Yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. It's still, I think it's always, or at least I always find it a bit odd talking about myself. Um, and I think I'm always aware of coming across like a massive narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> and... Yeah, but um, no, it's 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 been cool, and I've been on a bit of a journey. I think with it, and you know, this is certainly something I I mean I wouldn't have, and we didn't really dive into the details, at least on the initial call until until afterwards, and the the beer I was sipping kicked in. But it wasn't something I was comfortable sharing so publicly, and I've become much more comfortable with it. Um, as time has went on and I think a big part of that is you reassuring me along the way and your initial kind of reception to me sharing that but then you know you mentioned the film the reception off the back of that has been it's kind of blown me away to be honest um I think I go into all situations in life expecting the worst outcome (laughs) um just so that if something good happens, it's extra special, and if something bad happens, it's it's not a nasty surprise. But no, I've it's been it's been really positive. So it's been nice to be able to take that negative part about my past and you know talk about it, learn from it, and try and do something positive with it. Yeah, and I was going to save it. I mean, I you know as usual, I have no notes, no plan, no pen, but. I don't think it's very fair to just not explain what we're alluding to here. And maybe we should talk about that initial conversation and what happened at the end and why. And if you could just give us the really abridged version of, I guess, what you told me after we pressed stop and why you chose to tell me. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think I think on the call or on the original um, recording, there was... a. I can't remember now actually, but I think I probably danced around it without explicitly saying um, what had happened. But yeah, ultimately, as a as a younger man, um, I got into some mischief, which you can you can learn all about in the film if you go check it out. And you know, but what I kind of kept to myself was that you know that mischief ended up uh, taking me to prison. Um, so I ended up being sentenced to three years in a youth offenders institute and yeah it was it was a difficult thing to say I think you know first of all 
this podcast like I think I kind of threw myself in and at the deep end I hadn't done anything else like this any other podcasts and um you know this is a it's probably the biggest certainly UK based outdoors podcast and you know I work in the outdoors industry so there's a good chance people I know people I work with would you know hear the revelations in it and the things that I, I told you so I, I did have that lingering in the back of my mind but as a, I guess at the start of the call when we first spoke, I didn't really know you that well. I think we'd spoke a couple of times over text. Um, but by the end of that call, I really liked you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we got on pretty well. And, you know, it's a conversation I'm happy to have with people I trust in a safe space. And if we were, if, if I was sitting in a pub with you, I think that's the same kind of conversation I would have had. But I think it's very different putting that out publicly. And, you know, I think although the reception has been warm, I think there is still a big stigma associated with criminal records, rehabilitation. When are you rehabilitated? What does that mean? Um, so I've always been really aware of that and I was in that interview. But like I said, when we chatted afterwards, I, yeah, I just got on with you and I felt comfortable sharing it with you. Um and the beer certainly helped. <laughs> Ace. Um, yeah, and obviously, you know, I think it's worth giving the context that, as you know, I've said as a result of that conversation, we made a film, but that involved us spending a lot of time together online and then a lot of time together in person, in the mountains, in your house, in Glasgow, going to where you grew up. And obviously that shared experience, that depth of shared experience draws people quite close together. And so I think this conversation will probably be very different um but we'll see yeah I was actually well it was funny because when you mentioned to me about recording a second um episode because I'd been thinking about how that first one went and it took you a while to say we were friends Matt but I'm really pleased you have <laughs> um and now there's no turning back because you've said it publicly um but yeah, I think the dynamic's totally different. I think I'm probably a little bit less on my back foot and defensive. And, you know, I feel like you're a person I can trust. So, And and we've shared lots together in a small time. Clearly you're a terrible judge of character. <laughs> <laughs> um, right back at you. <laughs> so let's go back to the start. And the question I would normally ask at the front of this conversation is, can you tell me, the audience, the people listening, who you are, what you do, whatever that means to you? Yep, so my name is Adam Raja. I'm a photographer, a terrible climber, um, and I'm the market manager of a climate action charity, Protect Our Winters UK. So I do that as my day job around four days a week and I pick up a bit of photography, outdoors photography work um, as well. And there's so many interesting avenues to follow and I don't know where to go first, but have you always been called Adam Raja? I mean, that's why I initially got in touch because of that Instagram post. Mm, yeah, so kind of, um, on paper work at least. Um, so yeah, like oh, to make things even a little bit more complex, like my full name is actually Asad Adam Raja, but I didn't even know the Asad part 
which is another like bag of worms. Um, but I didn't know that was my name or, or part of my name until I was in high school. But yeah, for a long time, I used the name Adam Campbell where I could. So online profiles uh, for people who knew me outside of school. And Campbell was my mum's maiden name. And I would just use that name to sort of distance myself, I guess, from or try to put some distance between myself and my Pakistani heritage. And, you know, it's not something that I'm ashamed of today, but it was something I was ashamed of for a long time. And I would say, I would say I was anything other than Pakistani you know if people asked me where my dad was from or I would make I would say Moroccan before I said Pakistani because it didn't have the same you know connotations in Scotland or I can't speak for the rest of the UK but certainly in Scotland you know it felt like a dirty word and I didn't want to be that so that was just one of the many ways I kind of tried to distance myself from my heritage and it lingered, like even though I had moved on, and I'm saying that like it's been a, a like it was a long time ago. But I don't think, I think I probably was ashamed using that name, or would avoid using that name in certain circumstances, even up until like three years ago. But as I kind of come to terms with it, or came to peace with it, um, you know, some of the things still lingered. So social handles still saying. Campbell and I just felt as though I was a massive hypocrite to sort of advocate of being proud of your heritage and you know embracing where you've come from and promoting diversity and inclusion in the outdoors and just in life in general and then being ashamed to use my name that I was given at birth so you know it came a point where yeah reverted back to Adam Raja um and I, it's weird, like, because I am, like, it's so weird actually, because some of my friends only know me as Adam Campbell. Um, but yeah, in school, at least I was always Adam Raja. So been on a bit of a journey with the name, but it, it's, I feel at peace with it today. And can you tell me about your upbringing background? And you know, this is probably going to be a long answer, and I'm not going to interrupt you because there's a real story to this, but. Where are you from? What was your childhood like? And how did it progress and play out? Okay, get comfortable, Matt. This is where you can't stop me talking. Um, So I am from a town called Cumbernauld, which is a satellite town of Glasgow. Um, it, It was basically a town which inherited Glasgow's overflow population as part of the the Buckfast Triangle which says a lot about the town. And it was an interesting place. It's not super deprived, but like anywhere, there are pockets of deprivation. But one thing it did have is, and it inherited from Glasgow, was a lot of the social issues that gave Glasgow the reputation it had and I think still has to this day. You know, a lot of violent crime, a lot of alcoholism, drug abuse, and these were things that, you know, were cultural, culturally accepted from quite a young age. But on top of that, like I said, I came from a mixed ethnicity family. My father was from Pakistan. My mum and her family were from Glasgow originally. 
and being mixed wasn't something that was very common in that area at the time. In fact, I don't think I knew any other kids that were, and I didn't know any other kids that had Pakistani family. So me and my sister were sort of the only two. And, you know, we got a lot of, I guess, a lot of abuse and a lot of bullying. And off the back of the film, I've had some more conversations with my mum and that sort of thing and about things that were happening, things that I didn't know. So she was talking to me um, about it and she'd mentioned that me and my sister had came home from school on occasions. I think it was my sister had a note in her pocket with like ra- race, racist slurs written on it that had been stuck in her uh, jacket. And even my father, um, he had a really difficult time. He opened a shop, a takeaway shop, and the window was smashed. He went out to confront the individuals who'd smashed the window and confrontation ensued and he was stabbed seven times. So it was it was a difficult setting and I think it impacted the whole family in different ways. You know, like my dad, so he, I can't blame at all on that, but I, I think it would be silly to say it didn't influence his life and impact the life he lived, but he became an absent alcoholic. You know, my mother was left as a hardworking single parent and I think my sister and I had some serious self-esteem issues, struggled with our identity. Um, my sister had some issues with self-harming and mental health and I think for me, I was steered in another direction and, you know, I just really craved acceptance and belonging and a role model as well, I think, from my father not being at home and I looked towards the local gangs or the, the young teams as they were locally known in the area. And and more often than not, like you say, gangs, and it sounds very official and serious, but it was more often than not, it was just a group of kids from an area and they were the cool kids. Maybe didn't want to pick a fight with them because um, they could fight. And that was what the postcode gangs in the area were really based upon. It was where you were from and then almost senseless violence based upon that, really tribal and, you know, I was involved in that for a while thinking, I think I thought being associated with the gangs would make my life easier. And and it did for a time, at least. And, you know, there was less comments at school and I was associated with people that other people were scared of and it did make my life a bit easier. But I think over the long term, you know, exposed me to, I guess, Scotland's underbelly and a lot of those social issues. So, you know, alcoholism, we were drinking from the age of 13, 14 daily in school, outside of school, weekends. And I loved it, if I'm honest, because it made me, for the first time in my life, feel at least temporarily comfortable in my brown skin. And then it was the only time that I'd ever when I was under the influence I started to feel or when I was targeted for my ethnicity it gave me the confidence to stand up for myself and unfortunately that meant I was getting in more fights and started to get a reputation um, and started to get in trouble with the police 
And I think one of the other issues was like as you start to get out a reputation and the people that you're around as well, you're exposed to older criminals, not just the young boys who are fighting over their postcodes. You're exposed to organized crime. And again, it was culturally accepted. It was it started off with, you know, my friend's big brother, for example, giving me some cannabis to sell. But that means that like the age of 14, you are involved in the sale of, you know, illegal drugs. And that progressed, unfortunately. And I started to move away from that postcode and gang violence and went to these individuals or gravitated towards these individuals who could offer me things that either couldn't ask my mum for or didn't want to. And yeah, it's a slippery slope. You know, there's that cliche um, that that type of lifestyle, you either end up dead or in jail, but it's, it is true and I've seen it happen and unfortunately I did go down the path of prison, which which I'm fortunate for to an extent because, you know, it could have, could have went the other way and I've seen it go the other way for other people. Um, and I was able to use that as a, as a learning opportunity, but it was, it was difficult. It wasn't a case of going to prison, realizing I'd made a mistake and being a good boy and living a good life from that. It was 10 years of trying really hard. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been somewhat of a journey and today, like I live, I still live, I live in Glasgow city centre um, or just outside of the city centre today but you you still see it but I just feel really fortunate to have been on the trajectory that I have been on and I'm sitting on the outside looking in now and I can sit here and talk to you about about it but yeah it's been it's been a bit of a journey. And what happened towards the end of that journey you know where where did the police come into this what happened? So yeah, there had been a few things going on. I'd been involved in a couple of fights and um, I'd, I was actually on bail for a fight that I'd been in, um, which ultimately, you know, I didn't get charged with. But during that, um, I was caught in possession of a Class A substance. So it progressed, you know, that although my intentions were quite innocent, initially and saw it as a bit of weed you know that escalates and it snowballs and it's a difficult life to get out of because you're in debt to people you owe money it wasn't as glamorous as it looked on tv unfortunately and you know you couldn't just walk away and you know there would have been repercussions as well if I did attempt to especially at least in terms of like intimidation um you may there would have been concern that you would aggress or you would snitch. Um, So, you know, people don't want to let you walk away from that lifestyle. But, yeah, it escalated to the point where I was eventually given Class A substances to sell, so cocaine I was caught with, and I was still staying at home with my mum at that point. And it was just a stupid scenario. I was going to a party person that was giving me it wanted to drop it off and I didn't want them to but it happened and I left it in my mum's house 
And, you know, I arrive at the party and the CID were waiting for me. And knew me by name immediately. And I knew the game. I knew the game was over. And at that point, you know, I'm arrested, warrants shown, CID cars are going to my mum's address. So my mum's sitting at home on a Friday night watching EastEnders or whatever, having a cup of tea and totally unaware until the police kick in her front door, which was, you know, still hard to talk about, to be honest. And it was devastating for her. And I mean, you know, you've met her now and had a conversation with her and these things still linger. And I think it did really impact her. And I, I feel really bad about it still because, you know, I had it from her intentionally and I was able to, because of how hard she was working, you know, to put a roof over our head and keep food on the table and give us a decent quality of life. But I think, you know, she feels guilty for not, not seeing it sooner until it escalated to that point. So it's it's quite difficult um, to dwell on. But again, I'm, I'm fortunate in that, you know, I've came out of that tunnel and we're able to reflect on it and I've I've came out okay and I've turned things around and you know that part of the film like it, it literally makes me bubble up every time I watch it I've watched it in public with other people on three or four occasions and each time I burst out crying at that section where my mum says that she's proud of me um, because I'll never sit and say I'm proud of myself and I would find that very difficult but what matters is that they are and yeah that that's that's really really powerful so despite all the difficulties and the hard things I put my mum through you know I think ultimately today we have a better relationship for it and she's come to terms with it I've come to terms with it and I think we're all happier and you know by all means I live a I'm not the wealthiest man in the world I'm not the most talented but I've got pretty good pretty good life and I'm pretty happy so I feel really fortunate. We'll come on to this later, but the only thing I'll call you out on there is you said you'll never say you're proud of yourself. I'll ask you again in five or ten years. <laughs> but we'll save that. <laughs> At this moment in time, I would I would find it difficult to say I'm proud of myself. But I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting better. I'm, yeah, I don't know. You asked me when we were filming if I was proud of myself as well, and I think I had a difficult time um, saying it. And it's funny because I'm I'm proud of my so a few of my friends from those circles have managed to you know live somewhat decent lives as well, and I'm proud of them for turning their back on it. But yeah, I think I think I I think I still feel a lot of guilt and. And I think I would still, there's just a lot that I want to achieve in life and a lot more I want to contribute. And I would like the scales, at least in my mind, to to go the other way so that I've contributed more than I've taken or I've contributed more good than I have contributed bad. But I think we can all say it, that we're our own harshest critics. But just, I've, I've not called you out on this in this way before. Maybe it's a testament to the relationship we've got now, but... And it's so easy for me to say, you know, you're living it, I'm not, but you were a child. You know, 
Children make terrible decisions regularly. It's why they're not allowed to vote or get tattooed or make decisions because they're rubbish at it. You were a child when this happened, you know? Can you really be that hard on yourself? Especially given when you did manage to escape that lifestyle. You were young. Yeah, do you know what? Although when I reflect on it now, I go, yeah, I was a child. But I think I felt, at least in the moment, I felt like I was a man from a very young age, which is is ridiculous. Um, And I, I think I would cringe so hard if I could see myself, how I was carrying myself and how I was acting. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It was just, I think in my mind then, I was an adult, I felt as though at that time I was conscientious and I was making these decisions myself. But I think as I've become older or gotten older and you're able to step outside, you can look at the bigger picture and you can see the influences that were around you. It was. I've had difficult conversations, or started to at least with my mum about this, because for her, and like lots of parents, you know, it's easier for them to boil it down and be see it as you were the good kid that got on, get in with the wrong crowd. But it's so much more complex than that. Yes, I guess it could be boiled down to that, but there was a lot of factors at play. You know. The wrong crowd wasn't the wrong crowd. The wrong crowd were just doing what was culturally acceptable and what gave you leverage within that culture. So the more we leaned into the negative, the more you were kind of rewarded. You know, the cool kids were the ones drinking Buckfast, smoking joints before we went into school. And it became normal. But then on top of that, you've got the other factors. And I'll I'll never point the finger at my father and tell him or say that my life would be endlessly better if he was more involved but it's certainly a contributing factor I think and yeah and I guess just the deep insecurities I had and you know I see a lot of myself or how I how I at least feel and my mother like my mum's very shy uh, quite quiet quite reserved person so I was already like that naturally and then I also had all the insecurities that came from being mixed ethnicity, mixed ethnicity somewhere where I was told it was wrong. So, yeah, I think I think when I talk it out, I understand that there was a, a lot at play and I think I understand that, you know, it's not all on me, but I think one of the things that have let me or have allowed me to turn things around and create a better life for myself was taking ownership of the mistakes that I made because I've seen people get stuck in a cycle because you know it's easier to point the finger at someone else rather than going okay I messed up I need to fix this I need to change things so maybe that's where it comes from um but yeah I'm always kind of I'm always kind of kicking myself. (laughs) Yeah, but there's a difference between excuses and explanations, right? I think like to make excuses for behavior like behavior you exhibited is probably not a good thing. It doesn't imply ownership. But explaining it like you were a child, you were a victim of racism, you were trying to escape, you know, huge negative um, 
influences on your life or negative experiences. And you did that by allying with a group of people who gave you identity and purpose and respect. And, you know, you and I have talked about these things for hours off and on camera. That's exactly what people in the outdoors are doing. It's exactly what people who love art are doing. It's, it's tribal, it's community, right? That's what you did in one of the only ways that was accessible to you. And I think you're right to <clears throat> take ownership, but also there's going to come a point, and this is, you know, more end of the podcast conversation, but I want to know when you're going to forgive yourself because forgiveness is a major, major part of recovery, I think. Do I forgive myself? You know, I think, I think another part of it is being I know how these things are viewed by greater society as well. I think I've always been aware of that because, you know, regardless of what I experienced and how I knew that was culturally normal or what I say was culture, culturally normal, for lots of people it wasn't and there's that shock value to it. So maybe in part it's a sort of knee-jerk reaction to show I repent in some way. And in terms of forgiveness, you know, I do forgive myself for what I put my mum through if I think about it simply based upon her reaction today. When Do I forgive myself? <laughs> I think I do. Don't make me think too hard about this, Matt. Um, you know, I do. I think if you dwell on anything too long, you can flip-flop back and back and forth and it, it depends on my mental state on any any given day but I'm definitely getting there I think I think a big part of it actually has been you know I bottled a lot of this stuff up you know I hadn't I'd been so focused over the past 10 years of progressing forward not progressing in terms of you know, my mind state simply distancing myself from the incidents that unfolded and shown that I was better and just trying to make a better life of myself. But I didn't stop and pause and really look back and dwell on everything. And I don't think I really did that. At least, at least with any, you know, real focus until that, the, the project, to be honest, and until we sat down and spoke. And I, had, I certainly hadn't had a conversation with my mum like it's in the it's in the project, it's in the film. That was the first time me and my mum and Gran had sat down and spoke about it ten years later and we're still talking about it and it opened up that dialogue and I think that's been cathartic in nature. So I think I'm going through the process of getting there and forgiving myself and hopefully completely and properly moving on. But I think for so long, I just wasn't. I was just so focused on, you know, changing my, my circumstances. It still blows my mind that the first time you'd had that conversation was on camera. I didn't actually know that. I thought you guys had like talked about it a bit and we were just going to film you guys chatting. And when I find out that this is actually the first time you've ever <laughs> spoken about it. So, I mean, obviously it was emotional for everyone involved. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I kept joking afterwards, and I was mad that you made me ugly cry. <laughs> but even in, in the, and I was when it went into the the film, like I think it was handled really respectfully, and you know, I was so 
glad to have, you know, sometimes you need external forces to have these types of conversations and something else has to come along and, and, and make it happen. And, you know, I don't know if we ever would have sat down and had that conversation. And there's still conversations to be had between us. But again, I think my mum, there's been a bit more light shed on the circumstances for, for my mum. And, you know, and I think to an extent I was quite selfish about the repercussions of it and I think I had the view of you know when you're the one sitting in a jail cell it's easy to be consumed by how that's impacting your life but I think it really you know talking to my mother about it as well it's really put into focus you know how and the the amount of levels at which it affected her life you know she had to read the newspapers too she had to go into work and face people. For me, bizarrely, prison felt somewhat like a respite momentarily because it, you know, it took things out of my hands and it took me away from it all. So I was sheltered probably from a lot of the judgment that my mum received. Um, and, you know, I was in prison with crooks who are in for the same thing you're in for so they understand it and there's no judgment and in fact you know there was a level of respect my mum doesn't get any of that and she was entirely sheltered from it and I think that was a compounding factor if if she had been more exposed to that lifestyle and the sort of I guess the culture that I was involved in it would maybe have been less of a blow but I'd hid it from her and and then she had to find out the very hard way about it all and, you know, receive judgment for it. But like I said, I think having that initial conversation, it's been, a, it started a really cathartic process between us. And, you know, we're not sitting down having these three hour conversations, but, you know, we'll be, I've, I've been writing articles, a lot of opportunities have come off the back of this film and, you know, I've wrote a few articles and she's obviously reading them and then asking some questions and we've had back and forth and it's not really the elephant in the room anymore, which is quite nice. Yeah, that sounds very positive. But, you know, you, you started to segue us towards it and, you know, we're about to get onto the the nice stuff, the mountain stuff, the what came next. But um, I think it's important to talk about what prison was like. Because you haven't alluded to it yet, but it wasn't just it wasn't just the drug dealers, right? No. So yeah, so I got moved. Prison was I mean, I would be lying, and I think most people would be lying if they told you I wasn't shitting myself sitting on that bus. You know, you're in a confined, I guess, a box and your life is now on hiatus and you're getting taken somewhere that you don't want to go. So going in, it was terrifying. And, you know, I initially went to Pullman, which is a youth offenders prison, but Pullman is serious in terms of there's a lot of testosterone there, a lot of young men who have something to prove. But I was used to that. You know, you have young men, I got in fights in the street. I was used to... um, that sort of intimidation but 
it was as I moved around prisons, um, I got sent to the Glen Oakle, I think it was called. And I'm not sure what the reasons were, but, you know, there was limited um, space in the prisons, so you were put where you were put. And I ended up in a hall, in an adult prison with lifers, you know, guys who were in there serving 10, 15, 20 years. And... Man, it's just, it's not the same. Pullman felt like a prison. Um, the other the other place felt like an asylum. It was totally different. And, you know, I remember the first day actually being in that place. And there was some guys who were in for things like, you know, armed robbery and... I think two of them had been in for armed robbery actually and immediately I'm not in the hall for more than an hour and they come in, come over to me and talk to me and they're like, stay away from X, Y, Z, this guy's in for this, whatever. And, you know, the guys hadn't been in there long. But I guess the simplest way to boil it down is there was a lot of predators in there. Um, there was two older, there were actually twins who had, I'm not sure what their actual convictions were, but I'd basically been warned to to kind of keep my distance. And, you know, within a couple of days, the, these guys were trying to befriend, befriend me. And, you know, you're a young man and they know they can they can take advantage of you. And it's that scary because when you're in, you know, Pullman and you're surrounded by lots of other young men filled with testosterone who just want to throw fists or throw snooker balls at you over an argument you know what you're getting but I had no idea what was happening it just felt it was scary it was scary and I really didn't know what the angle was at any time you know I knew that they weren't trying to be my friend because they liked me, certainly. And there was a lot of other things going on. So, for example, in Pullman, there's not really... There's drug use, but there's no heroin. Um, and... I really don't know how to phrase this, but there's no... There's no sexual interactions between prisoners and youth offenders. There was in the adult prison, which... I didn't expect, to be honest. I thought that happened in prisons in far-off land, you know, in high-max prisons, like in America. But that sort of thing was going on. And, you know, I'd literally been plucked from a youth offenders institute and then put in this situation. So I was counting every day in that place. I think the scariest thing about Pullment was how quickly you could adapt to it and how quickly that felt normal. But I think Glen Oakle was the name of the other prison that never felt normal and I was never comfortable in that place. It's actually it's given me the creeps actually thinking about it. <laughs> how long did you stay there? I think I was in Glen Oakle for around six months. Um... Yeah, I remember, I remember phoning my mum when I got moved, 
and you know they don't they don't your family don't find out you're being moved or anything until you have moved so it's a yeah I think it it took her by surprise as well um but you can't you know I'm, I, I couldn't tell my mum that it was it was worse or it was any different and to be honest like at, at first I wasn't really sure um how it differed but you know I think it was the when I think back to that period I just felt helpless because you're just you just have no control over anything like it was already difficult you know being removed from your life and put in Pullment, but then just at the drop of a hat, you can be plucked and moved again, and you never really get to settle in, I guess, and become comfortable with your surroundings. But man, yeah, if it was if it was six months, I think it must have been. Um, it was it was a fairly long six months, and I remember, you know, it wasn't even just the prison prisoners actually. When I think back, so, you know, I got released fortunately early on a tag, an electronic tag for good behavior. But to do that, you have to, you have to pass drug tests, you have to not get in fights, that sort of thing. And it was even the the prison officers would mess with you. So I had to, I, to this day, I don't know if, I don't know if this really happened or if they were just messing with me, but, you know, you had to do a drug test. I hadn't taken any drugs in prison. Um, but on one occasion, I had woke up in my cell. That was the other thing. In Pullman, I had a cell to myself. And Glen Oakle, you know, I was sharing the cell, but I woke up one night and my cellmate was smoking heroin off of tinfoil in the room. And... I don't think surely that would have been enough to get into my system. But I, I'm going for my, I get called out to do my P-test to, to get my tag and pee in the cup, give it to the officers. And they just look at me and they tell me, I've failed my test, you're not going home. And I was just baffled, you know, because it's all, I'd, I'd been on my, I'd behaved myself for 12 months, I'd avoided confrontations you know there were times when I wanted to fight back for people I took abuse and um, I got called names but I bit my tongue so that you know I wasn't risking my opportunity to get home early and yeah I peed in that cup and they told me I'd failed so the reason that I think and I'm not sure but I think I think they were just bullshitting was that you know they told me to let it go this time, but I think they were just toying with me. I think they just liked to watch me squirm. But that was the kit type of thing that happened every day in that place, you know? So, and for me, it was hard to get my head around because, you know, the loss of your liberty is a punishment. But every day, was there was other punishments within those walls. And that's hard. And you're no longer being punished for the crime. You're being punished for being in there. So, yeah, not, not a nice place. It's horrendous, that really. Me, yeah, it made, it made me sweat like that. I've actually not thought or spoke about that. 
place from that much depth. But yeah. When did, um, you know, obviously there was a trigger point where you decided that you weren't going to do this anymore. That, you know, and you and I have had this conversation before, one of the natural or the, the, the obvious thing that happens is you get out, you go back to the same friends, they have a welcome home party, they hand you another bag and off you go. When did you decide you weren't going to do that and what did you do about it? So, you know, I think the whole time I was in prison, I knew that I wanted to make a better life for myself and I knew I wanted to find another means. But I, re I remember sitting, I remember the first visitation I had from my nephew and I was sitting in Pullman and my mum brought my, it was my only nephew at the time, brought him to visit me and he was, he was so young, he didn't understand where he was and we just told him it was my work and he, he didn't question it. And even within that couple of months or whatever it was, I could see how much he had grown, you know, at that age, they just grow so fast. And I've always seen so much of myself in him and I was just so worried. He's He was growing up in the same house, you know, he was living in my bedroom or what was previously my bedroom. His father wasn't around either. And, you know, it terrified me and it broke my heart when I saw him and that he was having to see me in this place. And, you know, I was his only or should have been his only male role model because his father wasn't there and... You know, what kind of, what example was I setting for him by sitting in prison? So I remember that and I remember leaving that day, you know, knowing that I had to change things. But I still had a year at least to, to go from that point. And it's, it's hard because different influences are constantly pulling you and to an extent, I guess, yeah, Pullman started to feel normal after a little while. But I guess in hindsight, fortunately, I went to that other prison that kept that, not insecurity, but just a discomfort. Because I certainly didn't want to go back there. But then, you know, you come out with the best of intentions. I came out, I the first thing on my list to do was to, to apply for a job and get get a new job. And the day I came out, actually, we went, me and my mum went to, I don't know where it was, it was like a high street shop to buy a white shirt and a tie and some black trousers to go just to start applying for jobs and so I could go to an interview. And it was, so I had the best of attentions and that was within a couple of days, but... You know, I got I got nowhere and I was applying for everything and anything, anything that didn't require a great amount of experience. So from cleaning roles and um, service roles at like McDonald's, all the takeaways and couldn't get anywhere because I had a tag on and, you know, I had a criminal record now. And so it was, it was a struggle for a while. And then the only people that were, you know, offering me opportunities. Um, it was opportunities that would or could take me back to prison. So it was conflicting and 
you know, that that year afterwards was touch and go, and I completely understand how people do end up reoffending and how it does become a vicious cycle because if there's no opportunities for you to change that cycle, the what are you going to do? And I think the crazy thing is that for most of us, at least, I, um, you know, I guess different areas have different opportunities and different forms of rehabilitation. But for us, certainly, you know, we came out to less opportunities than when we went in. You know, there was less opportunities available for us. There was no support structure. I didn't, I, I thought I would have like a parole officer or, and, you know, a counsellor to go and see, but there was nothing. You, you, the gates open, the gates close. You now have a conviction. You have less money. It's, it's not a good position to find yourself in. And it was just gradual, you know, I think, I was really at my wit's end when I did manage to get an opportunity that gave me a way out. And it was a unique opportunity to Scotland. So I ended up applying to university. And a couple factors made that happen. First of all, in Scotland, tuition fees are paid for by the government, which is amazing because I didn't have cash to pay for a degree. And then... You know, I didn't have some of the qualifications needed, but the opportunity to go to summer school uh, during the summer before semester started to pick up, you know, uh, maths, I think it was. And if you passed that, then you could enroll. And I managed to get into university and started a business with marketing degree, which that was the opportunity out. That was the path out, which was amazing. So without that... I really don't know what would have happened if, because that was the end of the road. It was my last ditch effort. And I remember crying in the bath <laughs> when I got the letter because I didn't, I didn't expect to get an acceptance letter. So I'm just so thankful that, that I did have that because that then opened up all the other doors. It opened up... So first of all, it gave me my first job. I ended up getting a job working as a student mentor for the university. So we were working with young people from the areas of deprivation and chatting to them about the, the options they had and if they wanted to go to university or what careers they wanted. And that was really fulfilling. But they took, I guess, took a risk on me because I was I was entirely open with them when I applied because you needed a PVG so basically um, it's like a background check because you're going to be working with young people but fortunately they supported my application and you know that gave me experience to put on a CV and move forward it gave me some income and that income then led to me buying my first car which which started me on all sorts of adventures and you know, really, that's when I started living, I feel like, and my life started becoming full of new experiences and experiences that really changed my perspective and outlook, not only on Scotland, but just, just the world, really. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, and you know, you know this is coming, but tell me about the car and tell me about, because this blew my mind and I accept my naivety and my privilege, actually. But like... Tell me about discovering mountains. <clears throat> yeah, I was actually talking about this earlier on today. So I remember sitting in a lecture hall on my phone. Naughty. <laughs> Not studying, clearly. but And I was just scrolling. And Instagram had started to get quite popular at the time. And I just kept seeing photos of the outdoors and mountains and one mountain in particular and it was the Buchel, uh, Buchelet of Moor in Glencoe and I remember seeing it and stopping and thinking it was amazing and thinking it was, I think I thought that it was in Iceland and then I think I seen it a few more times and I looked at the comments and saw people mentioning it was in Scotland and I didn't believe it. And I think I Googled it and saw that it was about a two-hour drive, I think, from Glasgow. And I was still skeptical. I was like, nah. <laughs> and I don't think I had the car at this point, but I got the car later. And yeah, without really dwelling on it, the first long trip I took the car on, maybe the weekend I got it, was to Glencoe just to see if these mountains were real. And it was insane. It was absolutely insane. Even for half of that drive, just my jaw was in my lap. I couldn't believe that you could have those views and that these mountains existed a stone throw from Glasgow, and I'd just never seen them. And, man, I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't know. I was just so captivated from that moment, and I think it was just the juxtaposition that they presented and the realisation that these had been sitting here and I was none, none the wiser. And I guess the outlook that sort of gave me, you know, to be curious, to look further afield and to pursue that feeling again, I think that's sort of what's kept me exploring and getting outdoors because that feeling was magic. But I sat, I got to Glencoe and I sat and I looked at the book. I didn't have, I didn't have anything outdoorsy. I didn't understand what the outdoors was, but I wanted to, I wanted to climb it and I ordered a pair of walking boots, I think the next week. And I returned to the book to climb it. And I didn't understand the difference between winter climbing, winter walking and, you know, summer hiking and, I set off, left the car, set off, gonna gonna nice hike up the buckle. And as I approach, it's funny because I had a video and I'm in the car going, Oh, it looks a bit looks a bit scary, snow at the top. And 
not only did I, you know, I didn't have crampons, didn't have an ice axe, didn't know what they were. I also took one look at Walk Island's route description. I was like, yep, must be this way and followed a faint trail that I could see, which was actually the climber's path, which takes you up to Curved Ridge, which is not a nice summer walk. I mean, it is if you know what you're doing. It's a it's a grade three scramble, but in winter and in winter condition, it's, I think it's a grade three winter climb. And I ended up on Curved Ridge in winter with with a pair of cheap Cadamore boots, no ice axe, no crampons. And I'm quite impressed about the amount of distance I got up that route. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I think it probably says a lot about me that I got so high before I realized something was wrong. Um, but I got to the point of no return and I was on quite a sketchy uh, section and I was standing on ice and there was like a water slide to my side. And as I tried to maneuver backwards, I, I took a slip and went down the water, frozen water slide. It must have been, I don't know. If it wasn't, it was around about 10 meters. And I thought I broke my ankles. But I managed. And, I, and it was so dramatic as well. Because at this point, what made me stop was seeing two guys up ahead putting on harnesses, getting out the ropes. And a blizzard was coming at this point as well. I couldn't see what direction the car park was in anymore. And I just had to use gravity to to take me back down the hill, kind of shuffling. And eventually the snow kind of stopped and I could see the car and I managed to make my way back. Fortunately, but that could have ended, ended very, very differently. But it, I think it left me more determined than ever because it felt like there was a new there was a new challenge there was a new barrier and it was my lack of skills and knowledge that was preventing me from fully enjoying this place and so I ended up doing a winter skills course and learning what crampons were and what an ice axe was and how to use it and it gave me the confidence to get back out and explore and pick up new skills and learn how to climb and learn rope work and I've loved doing all that, and I think it is, you know, that untethered freedom these skills give you because Glencoe can be a very dangerous place, but if you've got the right skill set, it can be the biggest playground you've ever came across. But you need certain skills to be able to traverse that playground. And, you know, if you can't, if I can only walk, there's certain areas that are cut off to you if you can't climb so I was just so keen to pick up all the skills and to be able to really intimately explore that landscape because it was it felt like fantasy and you know and I mean it looks like a fantasy uh, novel it's, it's such a unique landscape and being able to to yeah, just intimately explore all those different routes in that place is just, I think I could happily, if you told me I could only play in Glencoe for the rest of my life, I think I'd be pretty happy. Um, and I'm just, yeah, and it, it's really sad because like I can tell that story and laugh about it. But even just last week, there was a, I think it was a, a gentleman was out wild camping, had his dog with them and unfortunately both their bodies got recovered on a couple of days ago and you know the weather turns and it's 
my slip, I was fortunate. There was grass below me, but that isn't always the case. Um, and I think, you know, I'm sort of pulling this thread here and it, it's a big conversation, but that's where, you know, when you start talking about diversity and inclusion and, and things that we can do, there's so many communities and groups of people like myself that, you know, they just don't have the skills and knowledge, things that we take for granted. I'll talk about things that I take for granted, but a lot of people have no idea because they've not been exposed to these things before. Um, and I mean, and there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot of other barriers. It's, it's quite a complex issue, but I think mine's was the extreme of it. You know, it's the difference between feeling uncomfortable somewhere, you know, maybe because you're not represented or because you don't know the etiquette of the countryside. But if you're on Carved Ridge and you don't know how to scramble and you don't know how to use winter equipment, it's, it's, it's a pretty sketchy situation. But I didn't know any better. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked on this podcast a lot with various guests about, you know, diversity, inclusion in the outdoors, and that's not to say I don't want to do it, but I think what's particularly, what shocked me, and again, I've, you know, I admit my naivety and, and um, privilege, is you didn't even know they were there. <laughs> They're two hours away, you know, and now, I mean, we'll get onto this, but now you just drive up to go and watch the sunrise and then come back and go to work. Like, yeah. You'd spent your entire childhood and early adult life not even knowing they existed and then not being willing to believe it because it seems so far-fetched. Like you talk about accessibility and how the outdoor community all feel like the outdoors is accessible. Well, you know, I don't want to like label you and put you on the pedestal, but you are evidence that that is not the case. Yes, I guess it's... It's strange. Is it strange to look back on? I don't think it isn't strange because I still know people who don't know what's out there. There's I could maybe not now. I've I've moved recently, but in the um, part of Glasgow I lived in just a month ago, if I spoke to ten of my neighbours or showed the ten of my neighbours pictures of Glencoe, they probably couldn't tell you where it was. And. You know, I don't know what the reasons for that are. I think a lot of the social issues we were talking about earlier play a big part in it. I think class and, you know, so like my 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 mum's family are very working class and, you know, that really dominates your life. So the idea of playing in the Highlands just wasn't something that they did. And... And the skills that you need to require, like I had this voice in my head for so long. I remember, so there's a place called Auchinstarry Quarry and it's it's quite a famous crag that's um, just outside of Glasgow, right next to Cumbernauld. And I used to drive past that with my mum and I remember seeing climbers on it all the time. And I was always like, oh, that looks amazing, but it's not for me. And that was just a default response. That's not for me, you can't do that. And I think, culturally that was just instilled in us from that that working class background I guess and I can't I can't speak for everyone but it's mind-boggling especially when you dwell back on it and you know our teenage years were spent drinking buckfast and underpasses and we looked forward to that and we enjoyed that 
whilst that playground is is not not far away but as a teenager if you're not aware of that how how are you gonna my mum's not gonna be able to take me there and even if my mum was aware of Glencoe we get there but how what are we going to we're going going scrambling mum like where where does she get those skills so yeah, I mean, it's it's baffling on one hand and then on the other, it's not, I guess. I'm going to just deliberately derail us and then I'll bring us back later, but have you listened, I know you, obviously you listened to this podcast before I asked you to be a guest, and um, mm. did you listen to the Dave McLeod episode? I did, yeah. Because I think, and for those who haven't, there might be an interesting, you know, it's a, a good recommendation, but because Dave is one of the finest traditional climbers in the world. Um has been for a long time, still is now, and he's Glaswegian, right? He, you know, very similar background to you, apart from he didn't go down that path. He fell in love with climbing at a young age, but didn't have the access to the outdoors either. And he used to get the train, you know, and and Dumbarton. I mean, there's a crag called Dumbarton just on the outskirts of Glasgow that, you know, there's graffiti everywhere. I've worked there a lot as a filmmaker and, you know, the local youth will come up and ask you what you're doing and you, you know you have to keep them on side otherwise things seem like they might get leery. Um it's just this crazy mix of kind of the local local wrongens um and <laughs> the climbers but Dave didn't have access either and you know he he likes he's a unique case in that he smashed down those barriers and he refused to accept them. But you talk to him about I mean he's a white guy right but from a deprived well I don't know if Dave would say deprived so I maybe shouldn't but He's not from a privileged background. Um, and I think it's just, it's another case in point. Like, it wasn't easy for him to just like, oh, mum, can I have a lift to Glencoe? Mm. You know, it's not like nipping down the skate park. It is It is difficult. Just out of curiosity, I can't remember, did Dave mention how he, how he became aware and how he no. got started like maybe he did and i can't remember i mean paul diffley's made loads of films about dave over the years and i think e11 which is the film about him climbing the hardest route at dumbarton i think that talks about that story but dave was like i can't remember what his first exposure to it was but he was like he was training at home on his doorframe because he didn't have any other equipment he was just doing pull-ups on a doorframe and then realizing that if he took certain fingers off he could train like finger strength and you know, he was. I mean, this is 20, 25 years ago. So that was a really. I, I was actually surprised when I listened to that because I didn't know that about Dave. But yeah, because I remember him. You know, he couldn't afford to buy the complete harness. He used to be able to buy a harness in, in two parts. Very, very safe. Not sketchy at all. I'm sure. <laughs> but I mean, he's still with us, and he's he's killing it. So not good for him. But yeah, no, that is interesting. Um, it's definitely something that's, it's very, I mean, I, I think you could say it about a lot of areas in Scotland, you know, Dunfermline, not Dunfermline, sorry, um, Dundee. I was actually reading an article recently and for the first time in 10 years, I think, um, life expectancy is dropping again. Um, and it's just, I think it's such, there's, I think there's so many issues at play and it's, it, it's so complex um, but it's hard to watch. Sometimes I feel like there's a lot of social issues within, I can only speak for Glasgow, but I also feel 
like sometimes we I don't know if we embrace it because we feel like there's no that that is what it is and we're hard-headed about it but we sort of lean into it and accept the circumstances if 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 drinking a bottle of Buckfast is as exciting as it gets for us we're going to have the best time we can have doing that and I guess it kept you know it meant it meant we made the most of what we had but I'm I'm quite glad I strayed away from those underpasses. Yeah. And it's funny, that Auchinstari that I mentioned, it's the same thing. You get the young team. We were, the last time I was climbing there in the summer, we pulled up and at the top of the crag, the young team are having a bonfire and throwing bottles of Buckfast into the car park. So you immediately turn around because you don't want to top out into that. Um, but at least they were out enjoying the crag, you know. <laughs> I'm not quite sure I agree with that. <laughs> um, so what happened to you next? Well, you know, you drive down, you realise it's there, you go home, you buy your boots, you almost, well, you do fall off and slide down the mountain and manage to survive it. You say that that's more inspiring than limiting. It doesn't put you off, it encourages you. Then what? Oh, and you did your course, sorry. You did your course and then what happened? So I did, yeah, I did my my winter skills course and I just kept getting out. You know, it was all I wanted to do. So, and there was so much after that initial exposure to Glencoe, it opened up the rest of the country. There's so many parts of Scotland I then wanted to see and, you know, the power of social media or one of the positive effects of social media as you start to see all these places that, you know, Glencoe wasn't the only part of Scotland I'd never saw. So I just started marching up and down the country in my in my boots and I think I gradually, you know, as I learned more about these things, so I enjoyed hill walking and I learned, you know, winter walking and how to stay safe in winter I then learned a little bit about scrambling and I knew that Curved Ridge was a scrambling route from my uh, incident. And so I wanted to learn to scramble. So I started doing that and it was just gradually building up skills. And I think it just, you know, it really broadened my outlook in terms of what I thought was possible and I guess what I wanted to see. I wanted, I want to still, I still haven't, but I want to see what the mountains are like in other countries. I want to see what the big mountains are like. And I started watching films, uh, climbing films and mountaineering films. And I was like, that looks quite fun. I would quite like to do that too. And I ended up going to the climbing gym to learn because I thought I would be able to learn rope work and learn how to climb. And for the most part, I was doing much of this alone which limits you in a lot of ways I didn't have any friends who were outdoors in I sort of gravitated towards the outdoors as well to have something to fill my evenings and weekends with because I had a void that was left from when I walked away from that community that I had so all these adventures I was I was more or less doing it alone and so climbing in the climbing gym on autobelays or, or with my partner was really the only option I had for climbing. But it was amazing and I learned so much in the climbing gym and, you know, the rope work that you learn is the same as outside. But I think gradually I then started to 
And that's only been the past three years, maybe. But I started to meet other people through the climbing gym and through, again, social media as well. Um, and know people who had that shared interest and I guess that common ground in, in the outdoors and started to reestablish a community and actually had people to spend time outdoors with and go hiking and go climbing with. And like winter climbing, unless you're doing, I mean, you, you probably shouldn't, but I was just solo and lower grade stuff. So ones, twos, maybe a three, a push preferably not because that was the only way I could do it because I didn't have someone to get out with and be me. but now that I have friends I've, I've, that you know that I climb with we done so last year probably around about the time I think I actually ended up being on a cold house um shoot with Berghouse actually and Glencoe and you know I wouldn't have been had that opportunity had I not been with that group of people to go ice climbing and develop that that skill set but for such a long time I leaned into that I'm a loner and I enjoy being alone but I think it was just because I didn't have any friends and again being of that mindset I'm going to work with what I've got and enjoy it as much as I can but I think it's been so I don't know what the word is not necessarily fulfilling but I've got such a better quality of life having that shared interest with people in having a community around me and I feel like I've got an identity you know I'd, I think when we first did this podcast I'd laughed when I said I'm a climber because I wasn't I wasn't super confident about saying that or if I was allowed to or you know what that meant and you know I think I can say that with confidence based upon now that a lot of my friends and the people I spend time with are climbers Maybe not so much the past couple of months because I've been really lazy, but spend my evenings in the climbing gym and, you know, your your life kind of revolves around it somewhat. But just having people back in my life that I can call friends and be excited about getting out at the weekend and chatting about really boring stuff like cams and the gear and whatever, um, it's, it is nice and, you know, I think my life is much better for it. And how much when you came out of prison, you know, you you consciously turned your back on, I don't want to say you turned your back on your friends, that's wrong. You turned your back on your lifestyle and you want, you realized that you had to move away from that group of people. How much did you, how much of a void there was, well, <laughs> I can't speak, how much of a void was there and how much were you lacking that tribe and that community? I don't think at the time... I realized how much of a void there was. I think in the moment, I was more focused on what maintaining or what repercussions maintaining those relationships could have and being in those environments. And even if I'm not getting up to no good for, so I'll give this example. Um, you know, when I had come out, one of my friends had invited me to their house for a few beers and you get there and there was actually quite a lot of people there and it was a bit of a house party but I was sitting there enjoying myself uh, just having a beer and I don't know what had happened I think they had music quite loud but the police came to the door police come in the house just to check they were being the police were being great 
but someone in the house threw a bag of cocaine on the floor. And as the police are walking around the house, I look down and there's a bag of cocaine at my feet. I'm not long out of prison. But that's the type of situations, that's what you can find yourself in or the type of situations you can find yourself in. And the, the repercussions for me are extreme. I'm going straight back. And, you know, if no one else in the room is saying that it's theirs, which I doubt that they would, no, there's probably a good chance it's mine, at least in in the in the police's eye or the um sheriff's. So that was the type of thing that I started to see and you know, it just wasn't worth it. And with that fresh in mind in the moment, you know, I didn't realise that there would be a void, but it was when I was at university and the people that or the my classmates at university were going out at weekends and had their friends and you know I started to realize that you know I was quite isolated but in in a lot of ways I guess I felt I was beating myself up anyway for the way things had went so I guess I didn't mind to an extent or I felt like that was just how it was. You know, I'd put myself in that situation. It's not ideal. But as time went on and you did not... Do you know what kept playing in my head, actually? This this might sound really stupid, but I thought about it a lot. I would see things on TV and it would be like birthday parties or weddings on TV. Or even even people in the family, friends get married... And I was thinking about it and I I didn't think I would have anyone I could invite to a wedding. If I was to get married, who would I invite to that? And it was just little things like that. And, you know, and I did get lonely and I didn't really pinpoint what it was until that void was filled again, I guess, because I don't think I knew I was seeking community, but... During the first lockdown, I think, is when I think a lot of people realised, you know, they missed those connections and, you know, even just the day-to-day chatting with people. And, you know, I started reaching out to people and wanted to get out more. But it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, I don't really know, actually. If I compare it to how I feel, I think just in general, it was an underlying vibe of, you know, loneliness. Um, And I think those old feelings of not acceptance, but looking for, you know, mentorship and advice, I realised that I was always just turning to myself and didn't have people that I could turn to. And that was, I guess it was, it was hard, but it just wasn't, it wasn't nice. And I felt, I questioned it a lot why I had struggled to change things so much to be in a situation where I was isolated and unhappy. So I guess I was always dwelling more so on, you know, the way I was feeling and the whys and the how rather than, you know, what was the root cause of it? 
I <laughs> I think I was just working that out as I spoke through it. <laughs> yeah, I think you were, but that's nice in a way. Are you happy? So this is a funny one, right? Because I am. I mean, it, emotions fluctuate on a daily basis. And, you know, if I compare how I feel today to how I felt 10 years ago, in general, I would say I'm significantly more happy. But there were days, and I think I texted you about it, and I was laughing with Rachel, my partner, about it, and I said, she asked me if I was unhappy or she asked me if I was depressed. Or I think she maybe just asked me if I was happy, and I said, well, I'm not unhappy, but am I happy? Um, I think I have moments of happiness, but I also think I get caught in my thoughts a lot as well. And I'd be lying if I said I was consistently happy. Well, I think that most people would, but that's a different conversation. True. Um, what would you, you know, I don't want to turn this into a therapy session, but what are the magic, like, do you know, you know, what would make you happy? There's there's little things. So in, on, in terms of, of the day today, when I get outdoors, when I spend time outdoors, when I've had a great day in the hill, I come home and I feel happy. But I think there's this weird there's this weird cycle I get in. So maybe I won't have went out for a week and then that turns into two weeks and your mood is low, but you don't have the more, you know getting outside will make you feel better. But I get, but giving yourself that, I don't know, that kick to do the thing that will make you feel better can seem really difficult. Um, You know, so sometimes as much as I love the outdoors and as much as time in the outdoors and experiences has benefited me. You know, I still do have those weeks where, you know, I don't want to or don't do anything. And I actually had a little period after Christmas where I felt quite down, I guess. But I think I think that was partly because the year prior was such a whirlwind. And then I came out and things were had quietened down and I was readjusting. But in terms of the bigger picture, things that would make me happy. I think when I was a young man or a younger man, you know, you, you fantasize about having nice cars and having money. And I don't think that really interests me anymore, but this is going to sound really lame, but I think I just want to be, at least in my mind, I think being successful would make me happy and feeling like a success would make me happy. Well, that's interesting. That second part, because I was going to say, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, true. True. I think feeling successful, So, and, and that could be taking lots of ways and success means different people because to some people having 100K in the back is a success and I don't. it's not about money. And I see if I'm honest with you, I think I don't really know what success means to me because I set for for years, for the past 10 years, I've set myself little benchmarks. You know, I want to get my degree, 
got that, you push it a little higher and you're not satisfied until you, until you achieve that. So, yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> but it just seems, you know, I know you quite well now, but you just seem like you're so on the right path. Um, you know, you're on the path. It's that simple. I've recommended a few books to you and you've read a few of them, but it's not easy. We're all on a journey. But um, go on, sorry. No, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I do. And I think, do you know what it is? I think there's so many things I want to achieve, but I think the nice thing is this past year, I suppose the first time, I've been able to look at a lot of things that I thought were like childhood dreams even are actually possible and achievable. Which is, it can be quite an odd pill to swallow because it brings, you know, it's it's on me. You've got to put in the work. Just because you can do something now or something is possible doesn't mean it will happen unless you put in the work. So I think sometimes it's nice to to play in fantasy land. And, you know, it was funny, like when you first asked me about this doing the project, the film, I think I agreed not necessarily believing or thinking it would go ahead. <laughs> you know, it's just like, a, yes, now worry about it later. <laughs> and then obviously when I went into that, I was scared. You know, I told, like I was a little bit scared about it all and not sure how it would be received. And I think I, I think I've got a lot of self doubt, and I always have, and I've had it since I was, you know, a, a child. So I think that plays on my mind, and you know, I failed majorly in life, and it can be scary. I guess the prospect of failing at things, but ultimately, on the other hand, my biggest accomplishments have come off the back of my biggest failures as well. I'm so conscious of not talking too much and not making this a therapy session, but I feel like I have to say it to you. Maybe I should just say it to your plan. I, it's very easy for me to say, as I've said a bit too much in this conversation, but I can't think of a single thing you've told me in this conversation that I consider to be a failure. And that might surprise you, but, and this might be a really awful thing to say and people might think this is horrendous, but I feel like I can because I know you, but... I see you more as a victim. And I think owning the things that you've done, mistakes that you've made, decisions, you're very welcome to disagree with me and tell me that's outrageous, but I think you are a victim and that you have escaped the things that befell you in a way that is admirable, impressive. You know, you've had to climb hills, metaphorical hills, that most of us never even dream of having to climb. And you have done that. That blows my mind. Are you trying to make me uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you saying that. And it genuinely, it does mean a lot. And, you know, it's hard because it's hard to, I guess, accept being a victim because I think not wanting to be a victim is what made me make certain decisions and I guess, act in certain ways as well or lean into certain things when I was younger. So that 
that will always be something difficult to say, I guess. Um, but like I said, I like to take ownership as well. And yeah, yeah, I don't know, but I, I do appreciate it, and I think it's meant a lot, like doing this project and. Don't want to blow too much smoke up your bum. Oh no, but... don't do that. Don't. No, no, no. <laughs> but you have, you know, th- this has opened up a lot of opportunities for me, and not even that though. Just the conversations we've had, like I really have been working through this stuff in real time, and just because filming's over, you know, I still text you some random stuff or send you a wee voice note, being like Matt. I'm having a shit day or whatever and we'll have a moan about something and we talk through it and it's been really beneficial and I actually do think I should probably, you know, speak with a therapist and, you know, about some of the experiences I've had and just the way I feel about certain things because I think that as I don't have a definitive answer for some of the questions you have yet because... You know, I'm still working through a lot of it, like we said at the start of the call um, or the chat. You know, I've only started really dwelling on some of this stuff when we started talking about the film project. So it's, yeah, I'm I'm on a journey with it. But I mean, I'm in such a good position that, you know, the fact that I'm sitting here and able to think of these things and analyze things in this way is 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 amazing, I think, on on its own. And I just had a weird thought that came in my head there as I was dwelling on it. It's not necessarily failure, I think I'm worried about. I think the biggest takeaway from, you know, everything that unfolded was letting my mum down. And I think that's what it is. And I think it doesn't have to mean outright failure, but I think I've just got that, I don't know, chip in my shoulder about letting people down, letting myself down, whatever that means. But things are so much better. And even if, you know... If I can't say I'm 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 happy every day, like I said, it's progress, and I'm so much happier overall, and my life's so much better than it was. So I am excited to see, you know, the trajectory, and you know, I'm hopeful for how things will continue. Um, and I'm just trying to seize every opportunity that comes my way. To be honest, yeah, that enough rambling. <laughs> Where this is my last question before we do the obvious close, but um, where are you happiest? And describe it to me. Where am I happiest? I don't mean necessarily like you know this square meter on this specific hill, but in what environment, what scene, where is it? What is it you're gunning for, and where are you most content? Hmm. Should have thought about this one before the call. <laughs> I think I think that it's weird actually because I'm I think I'm happiest when I'm creating. So in terms of art or photography, so 
whether it's editing a small reel or something like that for Instagram, which is, you know, there's there's literally very little skill in my video editing, but taking f- photographs and, you know, seeing particularly photography, seeing incremental improvements and you get that, you know, nice feeling and you've seen progress in real time. But then me being... Um, the way that I am, you know, at the same time, I think that those, that's the area that brings the biggest frustrations in my life as well. Because I want you, you, I don't know, you want to see, you want to see improvements faster or you want to be picking up more, you know, why did I only get that many photo shoots last year and that type of thing? Or you see, you know, other creatives that just blow your work out of the water. But I think, you know, just in general, I think when you're, you know, creating something and even taking it away from the photography. Off the back of this, I wrote a few articles and it's really nice whether you're going in to, to edit an image and at the end of it, you've you've edited it and you're really happy with it or you've thrown a load of words into a document and it comes out and it's a half-decent article. I find that really, really rewarding. And I may not be happy throughout the process, but when it comes out the other end and you've you've created something that's half decent, I think that brings me quite a lot of happiness. Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> um, yeah, art's a funny journey, right? Photography, anything creative. I just I did a podcast last night um, with a photographer and it's difficult because there's no tangible measure of whether or not it's any good and you know it's hard judging your own work against somebody else's and it's learning to be happy with it for its own sake I certainly struggle with that but I found that doing work which is only supposed to be for me and yeah I might share it with the world in some capacity but actually just I mean for me a lot of the urban exploration stuff that I've done it's not for anyone I'm never going to put it anywhere um but I take pride in it. I think that, yeah. Anyway, it's a whole different conversation. I'm going to do the close now because we're at one hour, 35 minutes. And I normally do 60. (laughs) Um, You know what's coming. So you've probably cheated. I've thought about it. Okay. What scares you? So I think the first time you asked me this, did I say public speaking? I don't know, did you? I think I did. <laughs> Which I think will always scare me. But if I'm like really honest about it, you know, one thing that I think about probably daily, and if not daily, at least every other day, is life. And the increase in speed at which it's passing by. And, you know, if I'm honest about it, it took me a long time to enjoy life. And now that I am, you know, every year is just getting getting faster. And it, it does, it, it, it scares me. And you hear how many, you know, a cliche from films is, you know, an old person sitting in old folks home talking about how they were, it was just yesterday and that they were doing this or that and how fast it's, it's went by. But I think, I think, 
the more optimistic side of that is that's a really wonderful place to be in because there are people in this world that are dwelling on life and the days are long and today can't end soon enough. And I've been in that position too. You know, when I sat in that cell in Glen Oakle, I was thinking about um, those long days and watching the clock. So I think it's just motivation to make every day count. But it is scary, you know, because my nephews, he was a little baby and that, a toddler and that visiting home. He's not, he's a young man now. And he's a young man that's making me really proud and he's not taking the path that I've went, which is amazing to see. But at times it does just feel like a blink of an eye. And it's scary. How old are you now? Oh, 21. 32, Matt. Okay, yeah. So it is, yeah, it's a long of time has passed, I guess, hasn't it? Which is good thing, bad thing. Yeah, it's complicated. And it, yeah, and it just gets blurry. Like I think I have covered a lot of ground. I've lived quite a full life in lots of ways. Um, but like I said, there's so much I want to do and so much I want to achieve. And I do feel like in lots of ways I'm just getting started at this new chapter. So I've got a lot of ground I still want to cover. This is a very silly thing to say, but I'm going to say it. But you get to tick the box of gangster, which not many people do. <laughs> there was, there was, um, there was. I think you when we were doing the filming. I, I, I did. I had a blank. You asked me a question, and I didn't know what to say other than became a gangster, did that or something. I can't remember, but it was when we were when we were filming and. This is true. Like, you know, at least I don't have to sit and um, twiddle my thumbs and wonder what it feels like to play to play the villain. Like I've been there. <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm probably embellishing. I'll maybe, there, maybe on you know? the outside. Yeah. What brings you hope, Adam Raja? <sighs> I'm going to get really cheesy here. Really cheesy. What gives me hope? My journey and my trajectory genuinely does give me hope. I said it earlier, like I'm not the most talented, I'm not the most successful, but I am in a significantly better than I was 10 years ago and a position which was genuinely unimaginable at one point. And, you know, I'm not happy every day and things do get difficult sometimes. But I've always got that journey to reflect back on and it's never gotten that bad again. And I've come out. So, you know, I think that is what gives me hope. And, you know, the nice thing about sharing this story with you and share, or sharing my story with you and, you know, putting that film together is Hopefully, you know, other people that have been in similar positions can see that and see that you can come out of it. So as cheesy as it sounds, yeah, like my my trajectory and my, my path gives me hope. I'm very glad. And I think, you know, the, there's that old rule with any creative industry, which is, you know, don't read the comments. But I think you probably have and should regularly go and read the comments <laughs> on your film. Um 
Yeah, because it evidences how people feel about your story and how it's affected them. And, oh, go on, sorry. Nah, I, like, you, you know, nice compliments and nice things make me squirm a little bit. So I was probably just going to try and interrupt you. Make try and undermine it, yeah. <laughs> I, I did. Now, that has been something that has genuinely been nice. Like, every day or every other day, I get a message even on Instagram from someone who's saw the film, uh, people that have had similar you know, journeys or similar struggles, and even people that have lived entirely different lives have just messaged to say they're glad I found the mountains, which is, is so nice. Um, you know, to- uh, social media can seem like such a toxic place at times. So when you, you, when you check the DMs and someone's slid in with a wee nugget of, of niceness, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's genuinely nice and, and, it, and it does mean a lot. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. Ace. Right, we'll leave it there. We did it. That's probably the fifth hour of conversation we've had on recording. <laughs> Thank you very I'm much. I'm sweating. <laughs> Done. <sighs> Should I press stop? Um, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're immensely helpful and help us to reach a wider audience.